This episode of the I Needed That podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Nero Gum and Mints. The root of it is based on the nervous system. Oh, okay. So you say neuro, like neuroscience. It's a science of the nervous system. Actually, what I say is Nero Gum, and I say Nero Mints because they are a proud <laughs> partner and sponsor of the I Needed That podcast. They put a lot of good stuff into Nero Gum and Nero Mints. Give me some of your favorites. Caffeine, theanine, B vitamins, the combination of those three is it's, it's a bit of a trifecta when it comes to energy, focus, and clarity. So it's funny because when I first started with Neuro, I, I fell in love with the cinnamon gum. I know. And you kept talking about the mints. <laughs> the mints are the best. It's true. So I started using the mints and now I love them. They're so good. They are so good. And all you need to do is hit that sponsor link, which is in our show notes, trynerogum.com slash I needed that to enjoy calm, clarity, and focus whenever you need it. Uh, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about BetterHelp. They've been with our podcast since pretty much the very beginning. And that's because mental health is really important to you and me. It's huge. And it's been a game changer for me and my journey of transformation. It's 100% <laughs> online to get started. You just answer a couple of quick questions about yourself, your preferences in therapy, and then you schedule with somebody and it's all the same professionalism and quality you'd expect from an in-office therapy, but you get somebody who's custom picked for you. So please enjoy 10% off your first month. Go to betterhelp.com slash I needed that. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash I needed that. We've also got the link in our show notes. Before we get to the podcast, what is, if you can probably, if you can land on one thing, what was the one thing you got from talking it out that helped you so much? I didn't have the ability to identify exactly what was happening until she put it into clinical words mm. and everything took shape from there. She was the one who helped me identify that I have an anxiety disorder. Right. And the moment she said it, I could do something about it. Yes, buddy. And I love it. That was the beginning of my journey out of the dark place that I was in. Enjoy 10% off. Go to better H E L P.com slash I needed that. You'll also find the link in the show notes. Let's get to today's podcast. I'm down for that. I Let's think go. that's cool. Well, Chris's podcast, I needed that co-hosted by Matthew Blades is available on all streaming platforms, everybody. So this is actually where we get down into some really up some tactical stuff. I like and and here we go. And Solutions and strategies. That's what this is all about. I needed that. There you go. I yeah. needed that. Bro. What? We just hit 100,000. We made $100,000? No, no, 100,000 downloads. Again, we were talking with Rachel from season five of my show, and, and I know, I can't tell you so how So where often. are they now episode? It, it is. For those of you who don't know me, I walked away from my radio show with a year left on my contract. And if, you know, in, in a future relationship, if it does, I will 100% suggest it. What happens if it gets weird between you and me? <laughs> Who's whistling right now? <laughs> wait, wait, wait. <laughs> <laughs> my, my mind had to process that for a second. <laughs> that was so unexpected. Welcome to our I Needed That podcast. I'm Matthew Blades. And I'm Chris Powell. This is going to be such a great episode today. And that clip of uh, that moment. From episode number 10 will yes, always make me laugh. Well, always make me laugh. Oh my gosh. We are in for such a treat today because our guest has helped 
thousands of women stop binge and emotional eating and find peace with food. She's a registered nutritionist and runs an online coaching company that supports people dealing with those things. Yes. She's smart too, Chris. She's real smart. She has a PhD in exercise physiology, which I can certainly appreciate, and is a meditation teacher and also a therapist in training. So it kind of tells us that she's into the holistic approach to all around wellness, which we really appreciate. We are bringing her in right off the gate. Good morning to Amelia Thompson. Hey girl. Hi, how are you? Oh man, we are so good. We are so good. Thank you so much for uh, being a part of our podcast today and uh, you know, for doing what you do. We're gonna jump right into the cast as we usually do because we actually got some feedback today from one of our audience members that I thought would be a really neat place to start. Yeah. But I can't decide if I want to start with that or if I want to start with a clip of something Amelia said about people pleasing. So, Chris, I defer to you. Oh, boy. Let's let's go with Amelia and people okay. pleasing. All because right. this is something I think we all, well, at least you and I suffer from. And so that one's definitely struck a chord with us. Okay, let's have a listen. This is something that Amelia said on a podcast probably just a couple of weeks ago. Listen up. <gasps> Whoop, wrong button. <laughs> there you go. I would like to add on that when you people please you are making decisions for you people pleasing is selfish you're doing it to please yourself you're trying to please others because pleasing others pleases yourself and as soon as you own that and be like okay well i'm saying that i'm doing all this stuff for other people but it's only to make myself feel better you may as well then do something that actually does make you feel better what a revolutionary concept (laughs) i was squirming a little bit when i heard that because i'm really harsh on that topic for a reason you know we all experience people pleasing but we do it from such a good place. So when you realize actually that it's selfish, it's quite transformative, in my opinion, because then you think, well, I don't want to be selfish. I, I may as well not do this. Well, at least that helped me and a lot of my clients. That's how I frame it often. Well, yeah. In fact, that that sparked a conversation between Matthew and I offline where, you know, because we're both pleasers. And, and so we it got us both thinking. And I was thinking, well, I, I people please because I avoid conflict. And I was thinking, is it? But then the more I kind of started talking myself through that, I was thinking, well, that's selfish too. That's me with a different opinion or whatever that might be, avoiding conflict for myself. Because mm-hmm. it is. Yeah, but let me save this, man, really quick, because then we also sort of talked about, you know, there are those moments where you're in the middle of a conversation and you need to choose your battles. You need to understand when it's important to be right and when it's important to be kind. And both of us are the kind of people who would rather be kind than right. And so, uh, you know, there's all these ingredients mm. that are mixed into that bowl of people pleasing. And I'm so excited that we're going to talk about this. So g- give me your extended uh, opinion on the clip we just listened to, Amelia. Yeah. So I think a lot of people who have dysfunctional habits and whether that be food or alcohol or shopping, whatever your kind of dysfunctional habit is, we often do it as a way to try and self-regulate, to try and manage our own nervous systems and our own feelings that we don't necessarily express and or our needs that we don't necessarily meet and alongside that people pleasing often comes alongside that because when we people please we're putting other people's needs before our own a lot of the time or at least that's what we think we're doing and we're putting everyone else's stuff first and when we do that we don't give ourselves the space to work through our own stuff and if we're not working through our own stuff that's when we turn to our dysfunctional habits to try and meet our needs in a different way and so that's where the kind of that's why we talk about it quite a lot on our podcast and um, with our clients it's where you know they often come hand in hand but I think what you said was really interesting about avoiding conflict because this kind of ties into that 
same sort of issue of you're right like there's a time to be kind and there's a time to kind of vocalize and, and be right but sometimes we avoid conflict again because maybe that feels safe to us maybe that's a childhood thing you know there's a lot of reasons why we might avoid conflict but again if we're not meeting our needs because we're avoiding having those conversations and we're just taking a back seat then we're doing ourselves a disservice again and if we're not meeting our needs again that's where we see a lot of these dysfunctional habits so I mean, I really fully, I'm such an avoidant when it comes to having hard conversations or disagreements and things. It's like, well, I don't mind. I may as well not be, I may as well just sit back and let that person win. It's more important to them. Mm -hmm. But if we're consistently doing that, we're consistently rejecting our true selves, we're consistently rejecting our own needs, then you can imagine how that manifests in your behaviors day to day, you know? Yeah. And and you spend your life, well, really most of your career, helping people who probably suffer from just this problem. I mean, you've helped thousands of women stop binge eating and compulsive eating. And what would you say is if you could put a number on it, how many of them struggle with people pleasing? I would say probably 95% of people that I work with struggle with people pleasing. I don't think you're wrong. I don't think you're wrong at all. Yeah. Because it's it's, it's certainly a lot easier to, to, again, to focus on someone else than to turn around and focus on what, what you're dealing with yourself. And so, yeah, yeah. And we always talk about it, right, Chris, that when you learn why you have that, what I call relational programming or Dr. Elizabeth Fedrick calls a a relational program, when you learn why you are a people pleaser, it can be easier to unravel the pie. Mm. And for so many of us, it goes back to experiences that we had in our childhood or experiences that we had in relationships where we felt that need to kind of pick everything up and make sure people were getting along and bring people together and find the peace and make the peace and all of those things. But as we just discussed, that's not the role of a child, right? That's not the Mm. role of a child to make peace and harmony in a family. Yes. Filled with adults, (laughs) right? You sound like you're speaking from experience here. (laughs) Of course. I think we all, so many of us are right. Like so many of us who grew up in the time that we grew up, it, it was just different. They thought about children differently then. We're now learning so much more about how we can benefit kids and really help them step into growth and all the things that they want to do in CMB. But when you understand that you're a people pleaser because of something in your past, and for me, that's the piece of, that's the thing that I needed at least to understand the hurdles so that I could jump over it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think a lot of people get stuck in that. They they understand, they they learn and they understand the awareness side of things, but then they don't take the action. And, and the awareness is the first step, of course. But then the next step is, okay, well, what am I going to do about it? Am I willing to lean into this discomfort? Am I willing to have these hard conversations and stop avoiding these things? That's the next step where I think a lot of us get stuck because that's actually far more uncomfortable than the first stage, which is kind of blaming everyone else saying it's not my fault I'm a people pleaser but now now it's my you know we're not kids anymore it's now our responsibility to take action and I think that's sometimes where we get a little bit stuck do you think and I would love to hear what you uh think about this uh, when it comes to conflict because I know you struggle with conflict and and listen I'm not super cozy in conflict either I don't love it but I have a different understanding about it now which is that there is no good or bad, there just is, right? And so if you take that approach into the conversation, you're like, all right, I'm just not going to put a bunch of weight. I can't control how they're going to react. I can't control what they're going to say. But how would you advise somebody to step into a difficult conversation, Emilia? Oh, that's a great question. I think usually they, they come from boundaries in the first place or someone overstepping your boundaries. That's often the time when arguments arise. And Brene Brown talks about a really nice way to set boundaries of, you know, it's okay that 
but it's not okay that. And I think that's quite a nice way to enter an argument. It's okay that you are annoyed that I didn't stack the dishwasher or whatever mm-hmm. it is, but it's not okay for you to speak to me in that way as an example. And I think that's quite a nice way to open up any conversation that that has the potential to be an argument because disagreements are fine. They don't have to blow up and escalate into this huge big argument if you vocalize it as a case as a means of saying sort of this is just not this pushes my boundaries not what I expect you to do but this is how I feel about the certain situation so I think kind of vocalizing it as a boundary first of all is is really really important and I love what you said about you know nothing being good or bad and Susan David talks about this and don't know if you're familiar with her work but a lot around um she talks a lot about emotional agility and that emotions and feelings they're just data they're not positive or negative. And when you can approach arguments in that way of saying, okay, well, I might feel X or Y, that's okay. That's part of the human lived experience. And I don't need to get rid of that as fast as I can by yelling louder and trying to win. It can be a lot more of a peaceful experience. Right. That totally, that totally makes sense. I mean, going off that, it's really based off, it's just the emotion that we, that we tie into certain events that happen, right? An event is an event, not good or bad. But the moment we place emotion on it, then that's where it can pull everything off course. I was just going to say, unless it's consistently <laughs> happening, right? Like if you're living in a world of, of confrontation and chaos all the time, it's very possible that you just might be in the wrong environment. And that might be something to get aware of and, and eject. Hit yeah. the eject button. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I had a question. I was, I was going to take a quick left, though. And, and I, I wanted left. to kind of take a, take a step back because I am so curious about your background. You have a, a PhD in exercise physiology. And so I, which is that what I yours have, is? So, no, I, I don't have a PhD. Amelia is way smarter than I am. I'll tell you that straight up. I just have an undergrad, <laughs> but my concentration was in exercise physiology and I, I have a passion for it. So what, and I was just curious as to what was your dissertation on? Oh, do you know what? My actual PhD was not um, hugely exciting, sadly. Um, my PhD looked a lot about, we were looking at the cardiovascular system and we were looking at adaptations of the cardiovascular system to different types of exercise. And if That's we can get adaptations, it was really cool. You know, you can get some adaptations when you don't even do exercise if you just manipulate, you know, blood flow and things like that, which you can do without even moving, which yeah. is amazing for people that, you know, can't exercise. You might have heard of blood flow restricted training. Yes, you know, of course. People, it's similar to that. It was basically that method. We did a lot of that in our lab, but looking at more the vascular adaptations to that. So it was cool, but I know a hell of a lot about one small thing, you know? Yeah, (laughs) I I love it. So, but but then you found a passion in helping women who struggle with binge eating disorders. And I have to ask, is this something that you've struggled with in the past? Yeah, for sure. So my background was binge eating disorder. Personally, I had binge eating struggles from about 15. It was my way of self-regulating. I didn't know that at the time, of course. I thought I just wanted to look like Kate Moss and all of these skinny models. And I thought that's why I was struggling with food. It turns out it's because I was dealing with my own trauma and that was my way of controlling my emotions as outwardly I was people pleasing. Outwardly, I was trying to hold everything together and uh, be positive for everyone else. At the same time as inside, I was really, really struggling. So I struggled with that really for 15 years. And didn't have any support because I was so ashamed of it and then really I fell into competitive bodybuilding actually and I competed for four years which was just a new way to glorify my disordered eating habits and get trophies for it and Mm. as a result of doing that myself alongside a lot of my academic study and my teaching I used to teach in sport nutrition 
I realized there's this huge gap in the fitness space of talking about these issues. You know, we spoke about fat loss and dieting all the time, but nobody spoke about the downsides of that. Nobody spoke about what happens if you can't stick to your diet and you binge eat and you struggle with that. And nobody said, you know, that's a lot of the reason why people are in larger bodies is because they struggle with the emotional side of eating, not because they're lazy, not because they don't want it enough or they don't exercise enough. It's usually a psychological reason a lot of the time at least, right? And nobody spoke sure. about that. So that's really, a, for me, my work kind of came from a, an amalgamation of the academic stuff and then my own my own life. For folks who like me who don't understand the eating disorder world very clearly, what does it mean to be a binge eater for 15 years? It, it means that you, uh, I mean, of course it looks different for everyone. Binge eating really is when you have, effectively a complete loss of control around food at certain times you may well overeat a lot but the key difference between what we call overeating and binge eating is this complete loss of control and the regularity of binge eating is what takes you from you know binge eating to binge eating disorder usually the key difference is how often that's actually happening Mm. Um, but really what it looks like often is that you tend to outwardly look like you have a decent relationship with food you eat you might restrict quite a lot but of course back in the day that was very normalized to not really eat very much as a woman in her 20s you know we just didn't eat very much that's what everyone did and so in public that's how you eat you might exercise a lot but often in private you you kind of might go for two or three days eating quote-unquote well and then you allow yourself to have a, a pizza And instead of just having three slices of pizza and being full, you would eat the whole pizza because you felt a lot of guilt and shame. And that's one of the reasons. And you feel like you just can't stop eating that pizza until it's done. And then you might eat something else and you get this physical sense of fullness that is often um, a way that we almost, if you can imagine physically suppressing your feelings, it's almost like we're physically suppressing our feelings with food we don't necessarily realize that's what we're doing at the time. We often think it's a food problem. And that's why I talk so much about this stuff. You know, we think it's a willpower problem and it's not. When you were bodybuilding, um, just because you're probably checking with a coach on a regular basis. And of course, if you go off the rails, it shows. Did, Did you find that you were able to, did you find different mechanisms or ways to control it more when you're bodybuilding? And this is a two-part question. Number one, how did you control it? How did it change your binge eating? And then number two, would you find, would you say that perhaps physically it was maybe more beneficial, but mentally it didn't solve the problem? But, was, but physically, you were eating, you know, proteins and carbs and fats, and you were probably tracking everything. It might have been a mental dis- disaster, but physically, perhaps you were nourishing your body more. It's a great question because. Even that's all Chris you, does is ask great questions, <laughs> Amelia. That's it. That's why he's yeah. here. You're too kind, buddy. But I, I'm I'm just curious because I've I've lived in all those spaces. I bodybuild. I was I was big into bodybuilding for like five years as well. And I I actually in that world I met a lot of people who were coming from disordered eating or eating full blown eating disorders, and I saw it was almost like a first step of them trying to get control of it. Yep. And, and, it, and they found it as an outlet because, you know, you know, a lot of these women's like, Hey, thank goodness. You're not 85 pounds anymore. You're not, you're 115 pounds on stage and you look phenomenal. However, your OCD, your, your, your compulsion around food hasn't changed at all, but at least they were steering it towards something that was a little bit healthier. They weren't starving themselves or yep. they weren't, you know, binging and purging 
you know, out of control. So I want to go ahead and pass the ball over to you real quick. Yeah. It's it's so good because th- we see this a lot. The, th- the thing with competing is, as you'll know, you have phases of your life where you're really strict and you diet and you follow what is effectively a meal plan, very rigid. And then you have periods when you compete. And then after that, you then are kind of trying to regain body fat, especially as a woman. Often you get a lot of menstrual cycle changes, hormonal changes. It's, it's really unhealthy. So you're trying to gain weight. But at that same time, as you know, you struggle with gaining weight because you see your body changing in the opposite direction after mm. you spend four months watching it do get thinner mm. and leaner and being praised for that. So I think for me, I never had issues before I was competing. So when I was, if I was dieting for a show, I had, I was very, very self-disciplined, which is why I knew that my binge eating wasn't an issue of willpower. When I went for something, I got it. I, I have a PhD, you know, I've always got good grades. I am super dedicated in anything that I do. And so I would convince myself, well, why can't you be dedicated with food? But it was like, well, if I'm competing, I follow a meal plan or very strict strict macros. And I was very good with it until the day I finished, I stepped on stage, got my trophy, got off stage. And then within days, that was when things would escalate. So, and that's really, really common. And we see this with any sort of extreme dieting. The risk of binge eating increases when you diet to the extremes. You also have like this severe hunger dysregulation that happens when you diet as you'll have experienced yourself. You know, we we do get physiological changes in our hunger, which means we can feel insatiable mm. when we're very, very lean. Mm-hmm. And because you haven't eaten a pizza in four months and then you eat that pizza post-show, you then feel really guilty for having the pizza because for four months you've told yourself this is a bad food. On top of that, for four months you've told yourself fullness is something that you shouldn't be feeling. When you are hungry, that means you are getting leaner. That means you are getting towards your goal. So then you finish competing and you're not hungry and you're very full. You feel guilt and shame around that. And so this guilt and shame spiral just escalates and it becomes a very hard time after any diet. And bodybuilding is such a good example of this to the extreme, but you see this in just day-to-day, you know, strict diets, which is why, you know, strict diets and meal plans don't work. It's one of the reasons why, because it just exacerbates all of these cycles. Yeah. But I think, I think I touched on that physical kind of, is it slightly better than disordered, like, you know, that kind of disordered eating side? I think I've had this conversation a few times. I think it probably is slightly healthier than the extreme disordered eating side of things because you do have a slightly healthier goal um but my issue with it I suppose is some people sort of use that as justification to do it when I actually think but it's still taking time away from actually doing something even healthier which would be developing a good relationship with food but I do think to some degree for some people it can provide a bit of a bridge before you then go into the next thing yeah I, I did see a lot of people, it was, it was kind of a first step toward their recovery, but then at the same time you, you nailed it. It's like, they start seeing incredible results for like four months and they're real. it's cause it's a control thing, right? For a lot of them, it's, it's stemming from those deep rooted issues of a lack of control when they were younger, et cetera, that can spiral out of into a lot of things, but you start getting these incredible results. And then of course you step on stage, it's all over. You start eating again. And, and, and before you know it, it's, it's a tricky thing with bodybuilding though. And, and I'm going to touch on this and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. You start eating and you have that pizza and guess what? Your muscles get bigger and you look even leaner. You're like, well, what happens if I have a hamburger and fries? And all of a sudden, and it's crazy for about three or four days, you look even better with every French fry, every hamburger, every pizza that you eat. Really? Yeah. For about four days after you, you start peaking, like everyone tries to time the peak, right? 
But sure enough, it can be a real mental mind F because the thing is you're dieted down and you are freaking hungry and you want that junk food and you start eating it and you look better and better and better. And so deep down inside, you're like, what if I just keep this going? Well, if you keep it going after about five days, all of a sudden it's like, oh, here, here it comes. And it, like all this water retention starts coming back on. And before you know it, you step on the scale and it's up 10 pounds. Mm-hmm. Then it, it, it can really mess a lot of people up. So you need to really come out of it having like realistic expectations. And, and I made that mistake for the first probably year or two when I was, when I was doing my bodybuilding as well. Mm-hmm. Then you have to come out of it with realist, realistic expectations and then reverse diet out of it. So it's like, so you maintain that strict control for months coming out of it. It's easier, but then Amelia, I'm, I'm with you. It'd be great if they could just dive right into probably a much safer and healthier way of dealing with the issue. It, it's, it's a stepping stone for a lot of people. But of course, there, there's other ways to, to handle that. Well, let me ask you guys a question, and I know I know it's it's not obvious from my massive physique, but I have never been a bodybuilder. Um, but I want to know from you both of you guys: Do you think that is is the bodybuilding just another way to run and hide from problems that you're dealing with? For some people, is this? Yes, of course. Yeah? Yes, yes. But I'm going to pass to you, Amelia. Go, go ahead. Because what, I don't know if that's true for everybody. I, seriously, I don't know if that's true for everybody yeah, because okay. some people um, might want to jump in and just get really strong and lean and beautiful and physiqued and chiseled and all of the things. Then that's the goal for them. But okay, go ahead. And, and I have seen that beautiful side of the bodybuilding industry. Like there's, there is an artistic, yeah. there is an incredible side of it and, and I, a part of it that I love. But then just like in anything, I know Iron Ironman athletes that are, alcoholics, former, well, former alcoholics, former drug, drug addicts, and that became their drug. And you're right. They're literally running away from their life mm-hmm. and same in body, but same in anything. Okay. You can take a very, Hit me. you know, uh, an addictive kind of personality and point it in a lot of different directions. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, for just for reference, there's a really cool stat that looks at like prior rates of eating disorders in bodybuilders and male bodybuilders. Male bodybuilders are a hundred times more likely to have been diagnosed with anorexia than general population or someone who doesn't compete there's definitely this crossover of you know traits between bodybuilders and um people with eating disorders in terms of like uh narcissism perfectionism a lot of the character traits that come with that so and and the thing with eating disorders is we know that a lot of the reason that people fall into eating disorders is a way to try and manage themselves in some way to regulate themselves in some way i mean when i was competing i i remember i went through a stage of 18 months where i didn't cry at all mm. i didn't shed a single tear now i cry almost every single day and it's a great thing you know i'm very i cry happy i cry sad i cry frustrated you know I cry all the time it's a good time but when i was, competing, <laughs> I was like, you're selling it you're selling it. <laughs> <laughs> it's great for the skin um you know when i was competing i thought no i'm just a positive person i just like i, I just don't cry i was at that time in a really abusive relationship i was sad but i never I never felt that level of emotion because when you numb the good, you numb the bad. And so with competing, you just kind of, you don't have to deal with anything because instead of me dealing with the fact that I was in an awful relationship, I was getting up at 5am and going to the gym for two and a half hours. I was working at the same time, 12 hour days and building a business for the next four hours. All of that overworking, overtraining, under eating was all just a way of me running from the current situation but all the stuff that I hadn't dealt with since I was 15 and I remember being in California once and I went for three months I basically just meditated all the time and hiked a lot and I remember I just cried one day on the beach for hours first time in months and I then just cried for a week and I realized 
all of the stuff I'd been doing was just me running away from my own stuff. And we work with a lot of competitors now who are post competing and, and feel the same. And they always have a go at me because they start crying all the time. And they're like, is this normal? And it's just because <laughs> you finally start to feel things that you you have numbed for so long. What did you cry about yesterday? What did I, oh, I don't know if you want to go down this road. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I, I actually like, I've got sad tears at the moment because I have some family health issues and they are actually sad tears. And that's, it's actually really interesting for me because it's a really tough situation that we're going through. And it's the first really tough situation I've gone through in a while where I have to, I have to be intentional with my eating. I have to be intentional with making sure that I'm eating enough, that I am practicing all of my mindful eating habits, all the things that I talk about with my clients when I'm having sad tears, I know that this is when I have to be extremely intentional because the pain that I could feel for the situation is so vast that I I very much try to reframe this as this is a really positive thing that I'm crying every day. This means that I'm recognizing what's going on because it would be very easy with disordered eating. You can, you can recover and heal your relationship with food, but you know, we all can so easily fall back into these old habit loops that our brain has developed that when I feel grief, then I will eat a pizza. And it's very easy to fall back into that loop. So for me, I cried about that and it was sad, but you know, I then went out paddleboarding and I then did all of my mindfulness stuff that I, you know, I'm really intentional with. So it's, it's nice to be able to reframe hard situations in the sense of, okay, you're dealing with them in a better way. Um, Thank you for sharing that. And I just want to just put an exclamation point on what she said, which is, when she thinks about it and feels about it, she goes through it now. Mm. She doesn't go around it. She doesn't find a way to not feel it. It's like, I'm sad. I'm going to cry, and then I'm going to feel better. I'm going to bet that as a meditation practitioner, and Amelia, I've been practicing meditation for almost a dozen years now, and I do something called TM, Transcendental Meditation, which has completely changed my life. And if there's anything that I would say to anybody who wanted to change any aspect of their life, the first thing I would tell them to do is start to get control of their mind. Because I don't know that you, listen, it might be possible, but it's going to be really, really hard if you don't have control over your head. Because as I tell people when I, so I go and I chat with folks all the time, I say, you're going to have 6,000 thoughts today. You get that? The average human has 6,000 thoughts in a day. Okay, so there's a lot coming your way. If you don't know how to work with your mind, some of those thoughts are going to turn into beliefs, and then you're going to really be down a road. Mm. So how did you discover meditation? What was your first experience with it? And, and how long did it take for you to get a little bit of control? And I realize I just asked 14 questions there. So <laughs> okay, I've retained them all because, you know, trained my mind. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> for me. Love it. I love this girl. Thanks. Um, for me, I started actually through mindful eating. So it was when I was struggling with binge eating and I fell into the research around like when I wanted to help myself when no one was talking about how to sort out binge eating and fitness. And I fell into the research. And one of the pieces of research I find I found was this program called the Mindfulness Based Eating Awareness Training Program. And that was a program that had been uh, well-established in people who are overweight or had obesity and struggle with binge eating. And a lot of that work was about building mindfulness 
And at that point, I didn't want to meditate, but they did something called mindful eating. And I thought, okay, well, I'll just start with building my mindfulness around mindful eating. And so I started eating more slowly and just being aware of what I was doing. And as I got into that, I realized, okay, well, the next step really is to start meditating. But realistically, I meditated for a year and all I was doing was putting a meditation track on whilst I was walking to work and kind of ticking the box of saying, oh, I'm meditating. And really, I didn't fall into it properly until 2018. So, you know, not that long ago, five years ago. And I again, when I went to California, because the access to classes and things in the UK at that point, not particularly great. Mm. And I just went into classes in, in California, every class that I could find, every type of meditation that I could find. And I would sit in really traditional mindfulness classes for 90 minutes. And I loved it. And then that's when I kind of broke down and had that, that week of tears and realizing everything. And after that, it became a very consistent practice for me. Um, but, but it's a it's a funny one I think there's a Viktor Frankl quote which I'm sure you'll have heard of between stimulus and response there's a space and in that space lies our power to make a de- the last bit is like to choose or to make a decision I always mm. get the last bit wrong mm-hmm. but that's what meditation for me was it, it's and I'm sure that you'll have your own experience with this but it just creates that space between the stimulus and in my case or people who I work in this case the, the want to eat and the response the pizza it creates the space where you can say okay what is my next best decision what is the next right thing is it this action to eat the pizza or is it to call my mom and cry you know and that for me is the transformative thing about meditation amongst all of the other things of course that you know it is so great for right we well, you know it's really cool because you know meditation is becoming a normal part of a conversation now because Looks you know like your mom was right Chris yeah my mom was right all along <laughs> my mom was like she's a self-declared hippie and she was super new agey back in the day she was always having me meditate when I was like 10 years old and I completely rejected it mm-hmm. and now everybody's meditating because they're realizing like the actual literature is suggesting it is incredibly beneficial for all of us um the meditation mindfulness they seem to be somewhat interchangeable there's also just a lot, when, when you look at the practices, there's so much about the practice of bringing you to here and now, bringing you to the present, utilizing your senses, right? Sight, smell, sound, taste, et cetera, touch, to bring you to here and now. Is there anything, is there any difference between like some of those just basic mindful exercises and then a meditation? Because you mentioned you fell into it properly, whereas before you were just like listening to a track and you're going through it. So what was the difference between that and then, I guess, a proper practice of what it is that you're doing now it's like again a great question so all I this mean, guy it, does all this guy does well, I'm, okay. I'm really two curious two. because I'm, I'm just i'm looking for application for myself and for our listeners it's like this is all stuff that we love and it's like man that it works so mm. how, what's the best access the best way we can we can really you know access it, it. And, and, and then you, i want to i want to put a little anecdote on it too yeah and you yes. walk this path so guide us Yes. I mean, meditation practice is the actual art of sitting and being present and being mindful of your circumstances of the present moment. That's what meditation practice is. It's basically a series of mindful moments. And over time, you then develop these, Mm. this mindfulness as a result of this consistent meditation. What I think is really interesting, I do a a lot of work with clients with ADHD because or who are neurodivergent because there's an increased rate of disordered eating and dysfunctional eating in, in these people. Oh, and I didn't know that. Yeah, it's, there's a lot of reason for it. But 
for, for people who struggle with meditation, especially people who are neurodivergent, sitting for 10, 15 minutes with nothing can be really challenging. <laughs> yeah, it sounds so, like torture, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah right. for sure. Like so 10 then, to 15 hours yeah. is what it feels like. Yeah, exactly, right. And it can just make you angry and frustrated and, and, and just make things worse. So then a mindfulness practice can be really helpful. So a mindfulness practice might be going outside and seeing one thing, you like you just said, see, smell, taste, touch, feel. Yes. Have I got them all? them all yeah, five. They're it. all five. That's <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think that's the first. But doing something like that every day or running your hands under cold water and just noticing how it feels and just saying, okay, I am here now. Or immersive exercise, you know, rock climbing, something that really requires you to be really, really present. All of those things can help develop mindfulness that don't necessarily require you to sit in a meditative practice. And so I think both are really, really useful and a combination of both is amazing. But if you really struggle with meditation and also people who have trauma in their background and maybe that's unresolved, meditation can be really, really difficult in that space too. So trying kind of entering it with some sort of mindfulness practice or mindful eating can be really helpful. I love that. Yeah. Let me ask you a question, Chris. Okay. Uh, at your height, and I want to ask you the same question, Amelia. Are you talking about my my physical height? No, because we know you're not there yet. <laughs> Which is <laughs> we, not at, very high. At your height, like what 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 kind of weight are you squatting in the gym when you're your biggest bodybuilding self? Oh, so my max squat. Yeah, just back give, in the give day me was four sixty five. Amelia, you when you were at the height of all of the weight, what were you what were you lifting or squatting? Oh, squatting. I am weak. I think it was like. 80 no actually that's a lie 100 kilos so 220 pounds yeah so it's a big number that's a respectable squat right there it's a very big number yes absolutely okay next question to both of you could you do that the first week of your training absolutely not amelia you (laughs) no definitely not you're gonna break something (laughs) this is meditation put simply when i learned to meditate my practitioner had me start with five breaths Try to get five breaths in a row without thinking about anything else. And the moment something pops into your head, acknowledge it, set it down, and start again. Try to get to just five. And then just try to get to ten. And meditation, and the reason I'm breaking it down like this is because folks think about it like I have to sit there like a Buddha with my uh, my hands right. like this, <laughs> and I have to clear my mind, and I, I'm not allowed to have any thoughts, and I'm just supposed to sit there in this stage of emptiness, which couldn't be further from what meditation's purpose is about. Meditation is about seeing what thoughts are coming and then letting them go, releasing them, mm. seeing what other thoughts show up, and then releasing them. And there's so many different kinds of meditation. You could focus on your breath. You could, foc- you could do like a single-pointed meditation where you focus on a thing or an issue or a problem. But one of my favorite meditations to pass out to people who have never meditated before, and I hope everybody will steal this and try it tonight, is something called a pillow meditation. Where all you do tonight, when you go to bed and you're lying down right before you're getting ready to sleep, I want you to close your eyes. I just want you to breathe through your nose and out through your mouth. And I just want you to think about one thing that you did today that was pretty positive, that made the world a little bit better place. Could be something as small as I picked something up off the floor so somebody wouldn't pick it up or step on it, right? Could be tiny. Focus on that one thing and then just think about it until you fall asleep. Now, how easy is that? All I'm asking you to do is go to bed. But I'm asking you to be a little intentional in those last few minutes where you Mm. fall asleep. Yeah, And what you're going to do in those moments is not only start to practice a meditation, but you're going to 
kind of create some karmic seeds for more of that good stuff to happen. Mm -hmm. You celebrate that in your mind. And then we, what you're saying is true. We know now the way the brain is working when we're meditating and we're actually making new connections for more of that stuff to kind of happen. None of us are going to walk in and squat 480 pounds the first week of training. It's going to take a minute. And so acknowledge that and give yourself a runway to Mm. get to a meditation. I'm going to do that. I'm going to think of one thing tonight. It's a beautiful meditation. It is. I think what you said there is so important. One of my clients once said to me, once I realized that meditation was like doing reps for my brain, it changed the entire game. She said, when my thoughts came in and I brought, came back to the present moment, I thought that's when my brain just got stronger. And instead of getting frustrated every time that happened, and then, although that's a bit of a distraction, she said, I, I felt compassionate and kindness towards myself because I thought I'm doing the work. I'm doing the work every time it came back. And I thought that, I thought that was an incredible way of framing it. And I use it with a lot of my other clients now to this day. Yeah. Amazing. I got a question for you. Just kind of bring things full circle. And I know you're, you're dealing with some family Here comes stuff good right question now. number three. <laughs> I'm so sorry, but <laughs> I'm just curious. I'm really curious. So you're dealing with some, some family issues right now and, and some sadness. And so what's, what's your go-to when, like we talked about, you know, what, what brings you present? Like, what did you go to yesterday when you're feeling that sadness? Great question. Yep. Um, Sorry. I, <laughs> I find a couple of things. I, I meditate every day. I meditate every morning and every night, even if it's a guided meditation. You know, if I'm feeling strong, I might do some unguided work, but really I will just use an app like everyone else and, and meditate. So I do that every day, but nature is my nature is my go-to so yesterday I went paddleboarding at sunset and just kind of lay out on the paddleboard for a few hours and for me it's that reminder that we are connected to something so much bigger than ourselves and there's something amazing about nature that makes you feel in insignificant right and if you're insignificant your problems are insignificant and of course they're not this is not an insignificant thing that I'm going through but it is just that reminder of you know it will be okay and it will things will pass whatever is supposed to happen will happen and I think there's something very reassuring about aligning yourself with nature be that you know the moon cycles if that's what you're into or sunset and sunrise I love to be out for sunset and sunrise it's very grounding for me and it takes me out of my head so I think nature is transformative and you know the research is there around the benefits of it for our overall well-being and mental health. I love that. Thank you. Thank you very much for sharing just a little bit about your personal life and everything, and especially with, with, and I love where you go because nature, that's my thing too. That's my jam. I go out yeah. there and man, it's, I'm going to show her a photo. This is Chris. Has, so Chris bigger. lives at the base of a mountain and every night he goes on the top of his mountain and look at this. Is, can you see that? That's oh the my view. Gosh. That's oh. the view. That was the moon the other night. Wow. You know, the thing is, it's like I go out there and like you were just saying, it's all of a sudden there's something just so much bigger than you. And it put things it puts things into perspective. You know, it's really easy to get stuck in the in the rat race here. And then sure enough, you go out into nature and you're just part of something so great, like without getting all woo woo here, because like you can just kind of feel the collective subconscious there that's that's all around. And it puts everything into perspective, like the the love that you have for each other you know, the deep and meaningful relationships and everything. And all of a sudden you're like, man, that email that I sent doesn't mean jack shit. (laughs) You know, it's just like, and it's, it it had me like a little in a tizzy for five hours and oh my gosh, there's something so much bigger. So 
Not yeah, this this yeah. hustle busy culture that we've created for ourselves is just wrecking every single thing. Yeah. And I mean, you know, one of my frustrations with living in Arizona is the summers because I love being in nature so much. But unless I go for my walk at 5 a.m., <laughs> it's yeah, like yeah. <laughs> I didn't, you don't even want to be outside because it's so friggin' hot. Yeah. <laughs> nature makes it tough around here <laughs> this, time, this time of year. <laughs> but we were just, I just actually took my oldest son up for a camping trip the last three days we've spent on the rim, which is in northern Arizona. And the, the first or maybe the second night he was there, we were there, we were talking about why we get so tired when we camp. Like normally if we're at home, He'll be, a, he'll be like on his phone, in his room, with his buddies, and he'll stay up till 11, 12, 1 o'clock in the morning. But when we go camping, he, A, number one, doesn't have his cell phone because there's no service, so he can't use it. And number two, we're just out in nature. And by 8, 30, 9 o'clock, he's like ready for bed. He wants to go to sleep. <laughs> and I just remind him that that's the power of nature. It resets us. Yeah. It has those powers Amelia's talking about. Yeah, and you know what? There's a lot to be said for when we're in that kind of hustle culture because I do try and fight against that. I, I try and balance that with the fact that I run, I, you know, I run my own companies, and there's always a balance to be had between hustle culture and success. And there's always a line that I definitely can fall on either side by mistake sometimes. But um, I think with this, like this, with nature and being out there, you get this kind of increase in the dominance of like what we call our parasympathetic nervous system. So like yeah, this soothing parasympathetic nervous system, right? But when you're at home scrolling, watching TV, checking your emails consistently, you're just getting that constant spike and that constant slight stress of your sympathetic response constantly being there. And when we have this, this kind of dysregulation in our nervous system is when we have these kind of bad habits, but also that's just also affecting your sleep, right? So if you've just got this, if you're moving your body and you're in nature and you're in daylight and you're going with the circle, like the, the sunrise and the sunset, your nervous system naturally regulates a lot um, more closely with that. And so of course you sleep better. Of course you feel less stressed and you, of course you feel calm. But when you're in the midst of hustle culture, it can feel very hard to convince yourself to get out of it, to do those things. You forget that really quickly, I think. Yeah, you certainly do. You know, you just rattled off a handful of things that seem to be like some of these essential components of wellness, sunlight, nature, et cetera. So it, going, going back to your practice and helping people, um, are there certain things that you're like, you know, say, say someone comes to you with a problem with binge eating disorder. What are the pillars that you're kind of looking to help them correct? And I'm sure you don't want to attack them all at once, but... I, I know like for me, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm moving into, a, you know, working with helping someone. And I want to look at sleep, steps, training, nutrition, you know, stress regulation, all these different things. What are the main pillars that you're looking at to help people who are suffering with some sort of compulsive eating or binge eating? Yeah. So, I mean, we would look at all those things too. And I think for for reference we work with people who maybe struggle with a bit of emotional eating and overeating all the way down to I have a, a registered dietitian on the team and a psychotherapist who work with people with eating disorders and so as a team we kind of work on that broad spectrum but there are certain things that we will look at regardless of who we're working with and those things are mindfulness whatever we do to develop that mindfulness is consistently associated with improved relationships with food reductions in binge eating reductions in disordered eating um more positive body image mindfulness is key so we will always work to develop that another one is self-compassion something that we all struggle with is self-compassion and there are kind of three components to self-compassion Kristen Neff talks about this a lot so there's the self-kindness side what we all think about with compassion is just be nice to yourself as you would be nice to someone else mm. there's the mindfulness side so again that comes in there 
And then there's also the common human common humanity side, which is basically the idea, of course, if, you know, I've eaten a donut, everyone eats a donut sometimes, there's nothing wrong with that. Or I've overeating and that's okay. Everyone does that sometimes. And it's just that reminder that, you know, we all have flaws, we all make mistakes and that's okay. And so incorporating self-compassion into any sort of eating disorder or disordered eating recovery is essential. Again, associated with reductions in binge eating or positive body image. And it makes sense when you care about yourself and you care about your body, you treat yourself and your be- your body better. And often when we struggle with disordered eating, we don't really have that respect or love for our bodies for whatever reason. You know, and that's so right. Yeah. yeah. A lot of it is trying to cultivate that. And then I suppose the third component of that is supporting body image. If you hate the way that your body looks and that's all you're focused on, why would you treat your body well with lots of nutrients? Why would you Mm. allow yourself to rest and to sleep and to not exercise to the point of exhaustion? You wouldn't because you don't have that love and respect for, I say her or him or they, because I like to think of your body as um, something to take care of and a I think it kind of humanizes it a little bit. And when you humanize it, my clients all talk about their bodies. She, she really, she told me, she was telling me she needed rest. So I took the weekend off. I love that. that yeah, yeah, that's it's, cool. It's a nice way of framing it. So there's those, those are the three pillars alongside all of the nutrition education. And, you know, there's a lot of nutrition language and approaches to nutrition that are really unhelpful when it comes to disorder eating. So, you know, complete food exclusion. Something I've noticed in the States actually is is interesting is we have slightly different ways of doing things in in the UK and Europe and in the States. And there's quite a lot more of the hierarchy of food groups here, as in there's quite a lot more of demonizing of foods in the States. You know, this food is clean and this food is good and this food is bad. This food is junk food you should never eat that whereas you know we still have that in europe in the uk but it's less so so here i definitely think there's still this bit of narrative of um i shouldn't eat this food this is a good food or a bad food but we know that things like food neutrality practicing this um giving yourself unconditional permission to eat all foods is actually associated with reductions in overeating and binge eating and disordered Mm -hmm. eating so it's a hard one for people to get their head around sometimes of actually if you allow yourself to have these foods you're not going to overeat on them as much as you do when you say that you can't have them. Comes back to that bodybuilding stuff that we were yeah, talking about. It's interesting. We yeah. just had the hungry Clementine on a few weeks ago, and she was saying, suggesting the same kind of thing. Like, right. we got to get over this good and bad foods. And she actually pressed Chris quite hard on like red, yellow, and what's the other color? Green. Well, yeah, red, <laughs> yellow, and green. Yeah. Uh, the, the the foods, right? Yeah. And uh, it was it was a really healthy conversation about well, what is a good food? What is a bad food? Like, you know, you could say. A ho-ho, you could say that's not a good food. But every now and again, that's a great choice for somebody to, to put in. Right. right. Like yeah. every now and again, that's totally fine. It's, it's just a ho-ho. Like it's she just said, an, the donut. It's an energy-dense <laughs> theory. It that's is. it. That's it. Okay. <laughs> so as we kind of wind down, we got uh, a question from somebody in our I Needed That Podcast audience. And uh, she knows that it's really important to begin with why. And she says, I'm trying to figure out what would be your suggestion for a beginner trying to do one of three things, okay? And I'm going to focus with you, Amelia, on her third part of the question, which is, what would your suggestion be for a beginner just trying to focus on a nutrition goal? And then, Chris, I'm going to ask you about water and steps, but that's going to be what, let's unpack that a little bit. So, so somebody's brand new, they don't know much about it, they want to start setting nutrition goals, what does that look like, Amelia? 
Oh, it's a great, oh, it's a great question. There's so many angles I could take with this. Um, <laughs> I'm going to because you're going next. I know. Yeah, I'm going to probably take a bit of an umbrella angle so that I can shove some things in here that I want to say. I think the the most important thing when it comes to nutrition is something that that you enjoy, obviously, and something that is sustainable and something that's going to help your relationship with food. And that is taking an inclusive approach to your nutrition rather than a restrictive approach to your nutrition. So as you enter this kind of phase of okay how am I going to support my nutrition think about what can I add to my diet that is going to be helpful for me as opposed to what do I need to take away from my diet and so that might look like the fundamentals of eating three protein servings a day fundamental do that having fruits and vegetables and or vegetables with each of your meals um, and snacks and again if you can, if that's accessible to you, then try to do that every single day and try to focus predominantly on your main meals and minimal snacks. But your main meals might be every three to four hours as opposed to just breakfast, lunch and dinner and having minimal snacks. And then that's re- honestly, that's where I would start. Think about things like, you know, if you have a fat loss goal, you might want to think about your portion sizes and tracking calories, etc. over time. If you just have a health goal, it might just be, okay, well, how many colors have I got on my plate? Have I got enough protein? Have I got a mix of macronutrients on my plate? All of these things come into that. But for me, it's very much how can I add to my diet? And if you're adding things like fruits and vegetables and whole grains, you're adding more fiber and you're adding more protein. Even if you have a fat loss goal, that's probably going to reduce your calorie intake. So it's about just maintaining those regular basic habits for me. And again, really taking that healthful, inclusive approach. I love it. What do you yeah. want to say to that? <laughs> it's, it's all, it's, it sounds it's beautiful perfect, to me. Right? Yeah, that, of course. Perfect. Okay, what yeah, about, what about water? Awesome. Somebody that's trying to just create a water goal. Chris, I'll let you go first on this one, but how, how, what would your advice be for somebody who wants to take a drink of water like Amelia is right now? <laughs> all right, so Amelia, I might need your, your help on this one, but here's where I would typically start with someone, and this is what I've done in the past. I've always just suggested that somebody, instead of like, trying to drink half a gallon a day or half their body weight in ounces of water or whatever it might be. I know the Harvard School of Health says three liters for men, two liters for women, et cetera. I usually just suggest to someone, hey, just drink an extra quart of water a day or just whatever, what, what kind of water bottle do you have in your fridge? Even if it's a little 12 ounce or something, just drink an extra one a day. Just, just try that. Feel, feel free to flavor it however you want, but that's, it's always a baby step approach. So I'll just say, hey, like, what do you have access to? How big is your water bottle? Okay, can you do just an extra one a day? That's it. And then we can, and, and, we'll, and we'll see if they can keep that promise to themselves. So I'm, a, I'm big into promise keeping. For me, like, that's, that's been huge because it, it takes the power out of the water and it puts it where it belongs. And so it's like, okay, make a promise to yourself. You know, as far as, you know, say you have a 20-ounce water bottle. Okay, so fill it up one extra time a day and see if you can do that consistently. And then over time, if it's, they've done it for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, and they feel extremely comfortable doing that, okay, maybe fill it up one and a half times <laughs> or two times. I'm just a baby step kind of guy. And I've, I've, seen, I've seen that work really, really well over my years as opposed to – and I've also been on the other end of the spectrum where I came in and I was having everybody drink a gallon of water a day. I used to be on the extreme side of things. And I helped a lot of people lose a lot of weight. That's why they called it extreme makeover. Yeah. And then, and then but guess what? A lot of them gained it all back because they they did everything that we were talking about at the very beginning of this podcast. It was extreme. They did what they did. They got incredible results. And then, of course, it was that first bite of pizza, you know, when it was all said and done. And it just got it just went they went all the way back. So I've dedicated my my life to really finding the solutions to 
to stopping that from happening. This is why this is a very meaningful conversation with you. And aside from the gallons of water and, and all this other stuff and answering this question from the user, I just going back to those pillars that you were talking about before with mindfulness and with um, self-compassion and all these things like, you know what I'm hearing as a common denominator behind all of those. Say it. It's about loving yourself. Yes. Dude, right? That's what I thought that's, you were going to say. That's it. Value. Yeah. That's like, that's the act. That's, there's no greater act of love than to prioritize yourself. Right. Then, then to take a moment and be mindful for 30 seconds before acting upon something like all of these are actions of getting someone to just love themselves mm-hmm. and just uh, like, yeah. go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I think the problem is people think that when they love themselves, that they'll stop achieving things. People think that if they're nice to themselves and stop stop giving themselves a hard time, that they'll stop striving or they'll stop achieving in some way. And that, for me, I think is a huge roadblock for people to get to that point of saying, well, okay, well, if I, but if I love myself, then I can do all these things. Like we know from the research that the, the kinder you are to yourself, the more compassionate you are to yourself the easier behavior changes and the yeah. the better the better health you have and actually self-compassion is associated with a lower bmi interestingly and there's lots of reasons why that might be mm. right but people cling on to that self-hatred one because it feels comfortable because it's what they've always known and we love the familiar but two there's a fear of being of loving yourself too much as a woman often it's the fear of being thought of as arrogant mm. Um, and that's a whole other conversation. But in general, it's this fear that if we're nice to ourselves, we're not going to achieve. And then that ties into hustle culture. So there's so much to it. But you're so right. And if you can just think to yourself, what's the kindest thing I can do to, for myself right now? A question my clients will always ask is before they take an action or have a conversation or eat, they'll say, is this nourishing or is this punishing? Mm. And if you can ask yourself that question, it's like, oh. or punishing. Yeah. It's important. It's so important because sometimes going to the exercise, when going to the gym, sorry, when you don't feel like it is nourishing, but sometimes going to the gym when you don't feel like it is just punishing because actually you are exhausted, but only you know that. And it comes back to what you were saying of it's about yourself. It's about what do you need in that moment? And we can't, we can tell you eat protein three times a day and right. drink this much water. But if you can't commit to that, then it's pointless. Right. Absolutely. All right. What's your take and stance, Amelia, on uh, the first part of her question for us, which is what would you suggest to a beginner just trying to walk 10,000 steps every day? There's nothing just about walking 10,000 steps every day. (laughs) It's become normalized, right? Everyone do 10,000 steps. It's a lot lot of steps. That's like five miles or four and a half. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what? That came from some sort of marketing campaign, by the way. If you look at the research, realistically, 8,000 steps. is Fitbit. I blame Fitbit. (laughs) You said 8,000 steps? 8,000 is quite a nice target. I mean, do 10,000 if it feels easy to you. But again, look at how many steps you're doing now. Okay. Can you, I I like to think about outdoor walking as opposed to just steps. So say you're doing 4,000 steps today. Can you just do 4,000 steps today and go for an outdoor walk? That's where I would start. Start Mm -hmm. there and then, and build yourself up. But again, don't go out for a walk and be checking your like Fitbit every second. Go out for a walk and immerse yourself in the nature. You get so many more health benefits from being in nature than you do from doing another 500 steps. So right. make sure you're not sacrificing that for a step count. Mm-hmm. Amazing. I love it. Gosh, my, well, I have so many takeaways from this great conversation, but one of them is, are you nourishing or punishing? Yeah, that's huge. That's super powerful, Amelia. Thank you for sharing that. Of course. Ah, all right, it's music we, time. We've had, we've had you on for quite some time. Yeah, and so music th- th- time. thank you. Thank you for, for sharing so much of your knowledge with us. 
but we have to have a little bit of fun with you yeah, before we 100%, go. 100%. <laughs> so we uh, we play Name That Tune. I don't know if you heard, but we are huge fans of Hurdle. And they got rid of Hurdle, which just irritated me to no end. And so we, we, we keep it alive here on the podcast. And so she said, I think the 2000s is the generation or the, the genre she'd like. Yep, yep, okay. 2000s. So just like Hurdle, Amelia, you're going to get the first couple of notes of the song, and that's it. And then you'll have to name the title and artist. Okay. You got you to gotta get this one. <laughs> Pressure's on. Okay, here right, we hey, go. Ready? Yeah. Oh. That's all you get. Okay, Brittany. Yeah. Um, oops, I did it again. Ah, Is that it? Yeah, yes. Good job. Nice Good work. job. Oh, thanks, thanks. Oh, were, you sweat- were you sweating a little bit? <laughs> I was sweating even more than I already was, yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> all right. Now now I get to put one over on you. Okay. Here it is. I've got no idea it. what that is. I know it. <laughs> yep, I know it. Amelia, you're going to know this song. I don't. Is, wait, hold on, because this is, is this an American artist? It maybe is. We didn't, maybe he didn't make it to the UK. <laughs> no, chance, no, no, no. You'll, you'll know who he is. He's playing the whole Grateful Dead tour right now. Also. All right. The song. I, I'm going to give you some hints. He's all tatted up. He's pretty jacked now. He's about 6'2", six, 6'3". Six, Every women love him. Guys love him. I, I don't know who that is. John Mayer. John Mayer. And the biggest city ever created a song written about Jessica Simpson. Was it? Or was it? Your body is a wonderland. Was it Jessica Simpson or was it Jennifer Love Hewitt? (laughs) Well, I don't, um, yeah, I don't have an excuse. I think I was too uncool for John Mayer in 2000s. <laughs> you you got Britney. That's yeah. all that matters. You you nailed Britney, so that's we're, we're good. Really, what matters? Tremendous. Oh, well, yeah. um, listen, Amelia. How can folks find you? Where should folks find you? Let's help people connect to you that need to keep uh, seeing the content you're posting. Where where do you want us to go? The best place is Instagram. Really, I'm on there pretty much all the time. Uh, my Instagram handle is Amelia Thompson PhD. So. I also have a lot of free resources, so things that can help with journaling, meditation, et cetera, on my website, emilia.fitness. So there's tons of stuff on there you can get. And you work with people in person or virtually? Virtually. So we have clients all over the world, actually. So yeah, all online. There you go. What a treat to meet you. And I'm so just filled with gratitude that you showed up on our podcast today. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me and for the excellent questions from both of you. They were great. Thank he, you he had more much. great questions I, than I, I had. I don't know about I, that. I kept, I kept score. Man, you, 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 <laughs> kept score. you took us to town on the whole meditation part. That was awesome. <laughs> All right, go enjoy Zilker Park in Austin, Texas. And uh, and, and the, the, they got some paddle boarding out there, right? Just outside yeah. Zilker? Yeah. All right. Yes. All right. Good stuff. We're going to get to a deep dive on forgiveness and uh, then wrap up our podcast. But Amelia, we'll let you go right now and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. We'll we'll be in touch. Take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Oh, that was so great. Appreciated her being on this podcast so much. She is awesome. Golly, she's great. Just incredible knowledge. Yeah. We got a couple of uh, little business uh, things to take care of really fast before we move on to the end of this podcast today. Number one, uh, I want to get an update on a couple of things. You are working so hard on your brand new app. Yes. We're a few weeks away from being able to launch this thing and put it in the hands of everybody out there. 
what are you willing to share with us today? We're looking for a, a launch to the world probably in September, but okay. I'll, I'll have one in your hands in just a few weeks now. Um, I've been working, guys, this has been well, a year and nine months in the making. And it is it is actually the dream of what I, it's it's the experience I've always wanted to give to the world. And I finally had the opportunity to. Amazing. And so that's why it's taken so long to build. But I'm just so happy with where it, it is now and what we're going to be able to provide. Um, it's going to be everything I've done before, you know, in, in the app space. It's that times 10. So it's, it's a huge platform. Another reason it's taken so long to build, but um, it's just the beginning of, of something really special. Can I ask an obvious on. question yes. that many other people might be thinking about now, which is you've been working with another app to this point. Yes. Uh, what, what, what happens there? Well, so I, I, I built our, the app that, that is operating right now, which is, it's been out for five years, which transform is tra- Transform. Yeah, yeah, my boys use been, it when they go to the gym. Yeah, it's been awesome. And so, and don't worry, it's going to have everything that Transform has. And then some, Transform's not going to go anywhere. Oh, it is. Because, no, because a lot of people, they love the platform. And the thing is, and a lot of times people get used to running on one platform, they don't want to change. Sure. Hey, I get that. If it ain't broke, don't, Don't fix, fix it. it. No, exactly. However, the, this this other platform, it changes the conversation a little bit, and it adds a lot more new components of wellness because things are changing. Things are growing. We're realizing, like she, like in the conversation we just had, she's talking about sunlight. She's talking about breathing and meditation that isn't, it's not offered in the Transform app. And so we're, we're taking it to another level, but we're changing the whole concept around it to something. It's so different, but it... And I hate to use the buzz, the buzzword secret, but it really is the secret conversation that I taught everybody before I take them through the journey of transformation, and it changes everything. And this is it's a whole experience around that change in concept. And and I can give you, I, I'm being a little bit mysterious right now, but I can, I'm going to okay. I'm going to give you guys a lot more information here pretty soon. The, even the name of the app. It reveals what the whole thing is all about. When would when, when, when we get to announce that? I'm going to announce the name of it in probably about three or four weeks. Okay. And, and we'll do it right here. Okay. And oh, we so, will. yes, yes, oh. it's going to be, it's going to be big. And I think it's going to, it's going to change a lot of, I, I, my dream is for it to change a lot of lives because it's a conversation we have to start having when it comes to loving ourselves, when it comes to overall wellness. And the thing is, if you, if you think about your overall health and wellness or weight loss, whatever, in this way, it changes everything. Let me bring us back to episode number one, which was called Blow Up What You Built. Both of us have walked away from things that were already working, right? We both had things happening in our lives that were functional, that paid us, that allowed us to do what we kind of want to do. And both of us said we need to do something bigger, better, more meaningful, more impactful. And we literally have thrown our own necks on the line to make those dreams come true, yourself included, right? You like you said it, 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 should, it should be noted that you've been working so hard on this thing that, and this is what's tough, and this is what folks don't maybe don't understand, is that when you have a dream that you're so singularly focused on, like the one you have, there's no way around it. People around you, they kind of fall by the wayside. You must be focused. You have to pour into this project. And guys, I'm telling you, what he has poured into this new product is going to change the health and mental fitness game. It will change the conversation. And I'm really excited to talk with a lot of people about it. I know there's going to be a lot of Amazing. there's going to be a handful of podcasts and some shows that are, they're going to they're going to say wait how does this work and I'll say well let me show you how and, and I can I can explain it really really and the thing is as soon as you get it 
it makes sense and you can't you can't poke holes in it it's bulletproof amazing it's awesome and that's why that's why that's why i'm smiling right now and by the way thank you for the kind words i'm really really excited but yeah you there's nobody that wants to see this out more than me oh man like yeah. i'm so excited <laughs> for the release of this just because of all of the things that are going to happen uh i'll be just very real like i think once you get this thing out this podcast is going to start to feel and look a little different it will change the it's conversation gonna free yeah. you up a little yes. bit in some areas it's going to introduce things to us that maybe we should be talking about. Like, I can't wait to see what the impact of that app is. It's going to give us a lot to talk about. Right. That's the fun part. That's why we're almost like holding right. back right now. And we're, as soon as we release it, the, the conversation's going to change. And again, it's going to make perfect sense to all of you. You'll get it as soon as you understand it. Okay. Uh, we, we got a deep dive that I'm just going to spend a few minutes yeah. on. Uh, but before we get to that, the last bit of bookkeeping that I want to make sure everybody's aware of is that if you live here in the state of Arizona, or you don't mind getting yourself here to the state of Arizona, uh, Chris and I are going to embark on a podcast tour. Uh, and we have been working with, and this is so fun for both of us to talk about, but we've been working with a really big mall company and we're actually going to take over seven different malls in the state of Arizona. And we're going to record our podcast live from one of these malls on like a Saturday morning. I'm excited. And, the, and here's the thing you put this guy in front of an audience and like the energy is insane. It's be fun, oh man. man, we are going to have a blast. Yeah. We both light up in front of people and and we love to interact with with everyone as well. So if you are in Arizona, please come out and yeah. visit us. Come join us. We'll get you the dates and the locations as we solidify those things, but go ahead and tuck that in your back pocket uh late in September. I think it was like September was it 28, 30? It's, it's like, yeah, the last couple of days of September. It's like the last yeah. week of, of September is going to be the first stop, and we'll make sure we make tons of noise so that you guys can join us, because how boring will it be if nobody's there? We want everybody to come <laughs> You'll out and experience this Well, it's, it, it's, it's, it coincides with some pretty big events that are going on. We'll be there. Yes. It should be a lot of fun. It's going to be a blast. All right. Normally, you're doing the deep dive, but I asked you for a favor a couple of weeks ago, if you'll allow me the opportunity to do a deep dive today. Yes. Cool? Yes, please. Um, and I want to talk about forgiveness because of something that I just had this incredibly powerful conversation with somebody recently about forgiveness. And one of the things that got brought up, somebody in the, in the group said, what if what happened was so heinous, was so awful, that there's no room for forgiveness. Mm. And I thought, man, that's a powerful question because that's such a subjective thing. I mean, I'm, Granted, there's a few things that we could name that are just horrible and everybody could agree that they're horrible. Sure. But by and large, our perspective dictates whether or not we feel like there's capacity for that forgiveness right. or not, right? And so um, I'm going to give you the, the, the Cliff's notes of this conversation that we had because I thought it was so powerful, which is, could you consider, just start to consider what the path to forgiveness would look like? I'm not even asking you to forgive the person. But could you entertain in your head what a path to forgiveness would look like? What would that peace feel like? What would it feel like for you to not have to hang on to that or carry that or think about that anymore? That's all I'm asking you to do. I'm not asking you to forgive anybody. I'm simply saying, what would the path to forgiveness look like? And I think by doing that, you will start to plant seeds for forgiveness later down the road. 
This may not be something you ever achieve, but by starting to entertain the thought of what will it look like, you start to plant the seeds of what it could look like. Yeah. And what, what, what would it feel like yeah. to have that weight lifted? Yeah, with the peace. How nice would it be to set some of that stuff down? Yeah. But Amelia mm. said it earlier in our podcast that a lot of times, you know, we have that story in our head and it's easier to go back to that story. It's easier to lean back on that old operating system because it's familiar and you know it. Mm-hmm. And what's your life going to look like when you don't carry that thing around anymore? Do you believe in this saying that forgiveness is not for them, it's for you? 100%. Me too. There's no question in my mind mm-hmm. who it's for. For sure. Yeah. Because when you carry that, man, when you carry that hatred or that shame or that anger, it's heavy. And you don't realize it until mm-hmm. you. it's like too late sometimes. So and, and, and in the short term, sometimes those feelings feel good because they feel powerful. But they a are lot, powerful, a lot Chris. Of, yeah, and a lot of times it's a way to try to take that control back that you feel was lost. But then, but at the same time, there's a cost to those because you, you tend to relive it over and over and over and over again. I don't know who it is. Go. There's a dude on TikTok and he does a great illustration of this where he grabs just like a gallon jug of water and he hands it to somebody and he's like, here, hang on to this for the entire time that I'm going to talk today. And so the guy's up front, he's hanging on to the water. And what do you think happens? Water starts getting heavy. <laughs> water starts, dude getting starts, heavy. starts sweating as his shoulder's on fire. <laughs> right. And an hour later, this gallon jug that he thought was so light and manageable becomes a burden. Mm. That is forgiveness. Yeah. Yeah. Becomes a burden after a while. Mm. Even if you're in the right for being super pissed off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, there, there, are, there are so many facets around forgiveness, but at the end of the day, man, it's like, I think all you could wish for anyone is peace from it, mm. you know, to be able to let it go. That's what I want for them, for sure, man. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Um, last thing on our list is a, oh, wait, wait, how do you say, how do you say thank you in Italian? Grazie. 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 We're saying thank you to Italy. Why? Do you know why? Yeah. That I had to ask if this is true and it's verified. We have been one of the top 50 podcasts in Italy. In Italy. For the last Grazie, few weeks. Italy. We love you. Thank you. Molto bene. I love it. Is that right? Did I say something? I, you know, and you've been there twice. Yeah. I still have yet to go. I want to go so bad. Well, let's go together. It was funny. Like, I, th- there was an Italian vacation planned right before my, my divorce. <laughs> so it didn't happen. <laughs> Yeah, I know, right? So maybe, maybe you can go with me. All right, listen, I would love it, man. I've been to, uh, I've done a lot of the, the the touristy stuff. I've done the vacation stuff on the West Coast. Uh, oh. I want to go to, uh, I want to go back. I want to go back to Florence. I want to go south. I mean, I have so many things I want to go and do and see. So I'll go anytime. Well, now we got a podcast when we're out there because they love us. <laughs> it's amazing. Italy, where should we come? Italy, you tell us where to be, and we will put it in the plan. That would be amazing, man. We love you. Thank you, Italy. Grazie. That's amazing. All right, guys, you enjoy the rest of your week. Chris Powell, what's uh, what's on the docket this week? Oh, I am deep in the trenches working on the app. We're, we're going to bring this to the world. So it's, uh, it's going to be a grind this week, but I couldn't be happier about doing it. There's no, no better place I need to be than right here in the command center bringing this thing to, to life. Beautiful, man. Yeah. You guys enjoy your weekend. Thank you so much for spending your time with the I Needed That podcast. See you next week.